And so on the show, we're talking about does property still make sense after these government announcements? This has actually come from a long-term list of the show, Kathy, who's been wondering, well, does it actually make sense to continue investing in property into the future? Now, what we've done over the last couple of days is revamped our return on investment spreadsheet. I know some of you have been downloading it, playing around with it and giving me feedback, which has been awesome. I've already implemented some of that. But the main changes we've made so far have been around these government tax changes. Now, we are going to release this over the next couple of days, and you'll see it all over Facebook, hopefully, because I really want to promote it because it's such a cool tool. This will allow you to plug in your numbers and run some different scenarios to see how the cash flow is going to change over time. Now, we've been doing that as well, and we've written a 2,000-word article breaking some of these down. We'll link that in the show notes. But what I want to talk about first, before we get into sharing some of these scenarios with you, is first of all, are we still going to see capital growth into the future? So does property investment still make sense from a capital growth perspective? And also, does property make sense from a rental returns perspective? So I'll take care of capital growth before you dig into the rental side, Andrew. Sounds good. So the main question, if you've been investing in the past for capital growth, I suppose the main question you're thinking is, are we going to see any of that into the future? Are we just going to see property prices flatline for the next 20, 30 years? If you're a long-term investor, that's certainly at the time horizon you potentially are working towards. And I think we'll still see some amount. It's not going to be the 22% per year we've seen over the last 12 months. That's going to slow right down, especially because people are worried. People aren't quite sure exactly what these changes mean for them, partially because not all of the details are completely finalised, so that level of detail isn't available. So partially the changes from the tax, there's an economic side to it, but then there's also a psychological side to it. People being very uncertain and then being unwilling or less likely to take action. But even despite that, over the long term, we're still going to see asset price inflation. And that's for a couple of reasons. First of all, the $3.8 billion housing acceleration fund is going to take so much time to come in. Councils will be able to apply for infrastructure in order to increase the supply of housing, but it's not a panacea. It's not going to solve the issue we've got straight away. So it's going to happen over time. In the short term, at least, we've still got a supply issue. Now, the other reason that we're still going to see some capital growth is this idea around building materials and supply of labour. So we're going to see a significant increase in demand for new housing. That's going to increase the demand both for building materials and for apprentices, people to come in and build these houses. Now, we have two issues. First of all, building materials are going to be relatively scarce compared to the demand for it. So we're going to see the cost of building materials increase. That's going to flow through into the price of housing. Similarly, there is a massive housing boom happening in Australia at the moment. There was a really interesting comment from Tony Alexander from Tony's View, where he's talking about once the borders open, he believes that a significant number of builders are actually going to move to Australia where the incomes are really, really attractive at the moment. Now, combined with the fact that the government is saying we don't want to have a loose immigration policy and that businesses are going to have to make do with the workers that we have here, we're going to struggle to find people to build houses. We're going to have a lack of labour. That's going to push incomes up and also push the cost of housing up. I remember back when COVID was first happening, about a year ago now, Andrew, there was a wonderful comment in another of Tony's views where he said, if you can turn a screwdriver the right way, there's going to be a job for you. 
Too bad we can't. (laughs) (laughs) We'd turn it around the wrong way. But because of that, we're going to see costs to developers increase. And also because of that, we're also going to see those passed through into the cost of new builds. Now that is going to set a new price for housing and start to push the average house price up. So there will be some amount. And I note in the UK as well, which has been introducing these policies over the last five years, or at least similar policy, we have still seen over that time about 6% capital growth over that time. Now, you might say to me, Ed, that's really small. The one thing I'd just remind you, though, is that over the long term, UK house prices have only increased at about 2.2% per year. New Zealand, historically, over the last 28 years, has been about 7% per year. So generally speaking, we've always had greater housing pressure, which has delivered higher and growing house prices. So certainly 6% over five years for the UK is slower than what they'd previously had, but certainly not the end of the world either. And the other thing that's really important to note is that these tax changes do not change the fact that interest rates are extremely low for homeowners, home buyers, and first home buyers. So while you might not have as many mortgaged investors out of the market, there's still going to be people out there buying. Now, I'm not saying that we're not going to see a significant slowdown over the short term, but over the long term, over a 20 or 30 year period, we're still going to see some amount of capital growth as the price of building materials increases, as the price of labour increases, and as the cost of land increases. One thing that we didn't mention in yesterday's episode was the fact that $2 billion has been allocated for the old housing corp, it's now called Homes and Communities. And what that fund allows is the purchase of land for social housing. Now, that's really good. We're going to have more social houses. But what that also means is that we now have a government agency that is out there competing with developers and they've got $2 billion in their pocket and they're trying to find developable land. Now, if you've got a whole heap of developers out there trying to build more houses because there's expected to be significantly more demand and now you've got a government juggernaut out there with $2 billion trying to buy developable land as well, land prices will increase. Again, that's going to flow through to capital growth. These policies will not cause it to fall to 0% growth over a 30-year period, over a 20-year period, maybe in the short term. But certainly if you take the long-term view and you're investing for the long term, then we expect to see some over time. Andrew, talk to me about rents. So rents is an interesting one. So let's not forget the fact that we've got a bit of a housing shortage in a lot of parts of the country particularly. So for for example, Wellington, there is a huge amount of pressure in the Wellington market. Now, I read an article a few weeks ago where there was a big investor there who had decided to not renew his tenants' leases because he wasn't really sure what he wanted to do given all the potential changes that were coming on. And so as a result, those tenants were now being kicked out and they couldn't find somewhere new to live. And he was saying, hey, look, I've already sold a couple of my rentals. I think I might sell a few more. So you've got this case of now there's a whole lot of investors out there who have been investors for a long time and they're thinking, this is all getting a bit too hard. Might get rid of some of those properties. Then you've got people sitting on their couch thinking, geez, I wish I'd bought an investment property before all these changes, but it's too late now. I'm not going to bother. So you've got fewer people entering the market, more people exiting the market, and this is going to exacerbate the problem. And this coupled with the fact that if I'm already an investor, and now I know that I'm going to have to end up paying tax on the profit that I haven't actually made, I need to recoup that money. So the end result is that the cost gets passed on to the consumer. And the consumer in this case is a tenant. So we 
firmly believe that you'll see rental increases. And actually, there was a comment in uh, Tony's view, which said a rise in average rents above 30% in the next four years could easily occur following rises of 22% since Labor came into power in 2017, which are being pushed on by the landlord onto the tenant. So there is always this opposite reaction that occurs. And this is a real challenge for tenants because these are the people who are wanting to save up and buy their first house. So whilst the government on one hand is saying, hey, we're going to help you get into your first house, if you don't have any savings because you're paying more in rent, then that's just not going to happen. Now let's jump into these projections or these cash flow examples because I think one of the things that is causing a bit of confusion and frustration out in the market by property investors, and I see this a lot on social media right now, is that because these changes are quite technical, they're quite hard to model, it's not the same as increasing your rent by $10 and multiplying it by 52 and bam, it's an extra $520 a, a week's worth of rent, just as an example. You know, you've actually got to model out a cash flow and then say, well, what's my interest deductibility going to be in this first year and then the second year? And because it takes some number crunching, journalists aren't putting out articles that show you what the cash flow would be. So you can really understand that. Well, they don't understand numbers anyway, do they? I certainly think some do. Some probably less so, I think would be a fair comment to make. So let's jump into it. Now, Andrew, I'm going to go first and compare a new build versus an existing property and talk about what the cash flow would be now that these changes have been brought in. So what I've got in front of me is a cash flow scenario that shows me the money that a property is going to make, so the rental return that a property is going to make every year over the next 15 years. And I've got it for a new property, and then I've also got it for an existing property. And I'm basing this off a start date of the 1st of April, so once these changes come in. So if you buy a new build on the 1st of April where you are able to deduct your interest expenses, or we expect you'll be able to deduct your interest expenses, compare that to an existing property where from the 1st of October, you're not going to be able to deduct anything at all. The really interesting thing is that in the first year, the cash flows between your new and your existing property are actually exactly the same. And you're probably thinking, well, how does that make sense if the existing property isn't able to deduct its interest costs? And the reason is this, when you first purchase a property, you usually have quite a lot of chattels in there, which you are able to significantly depreciate in the first year. Now, what that means is that when you're calculating your taxation costs, usually you're going to make a significant tax loss in the first year of owning a property. You might actually earn cash off it, but because of that depreciation, which you're claiming as an expense, that offsets a whole heap of your other income. Now, we are going to do another episode breaking down exactly how to read a chattel depreciation statement because chattel depreciation is going to become more and more important because that's going to be a tax deduction and help to reduce your tax. But the really interesting thing happens in years two to five. So for instance, while you in the first year of owning that existing property would make $166 in total, as soon as you go into year two, you start to get negatively geared even at very, very low interest rates. So if I look at that existing property and say, well, what's the cash flow per week in year two? It's negative 25 a week. Then it becomes negative 32 per week. Then negative 28, then negative 23. Now the real issue comes when interest rates start to increase. Now why is that? It's because in effect, these tax changes are like multiplying your interest rate by 1.5. 
So if interest rates, retail interest rates increase, then of course 1.5 times by 4 is a lot scarier than 1.5 multiplied by 2.3% for instance. And because of that, higher and higher interest rates start to make your property even more negatively geared. So in my scenario, it becomes negatively geared by 9 grand in the 6th year once interest rates increase, and that's only going to 4%. So let me just compare a new build compared to an existing property. Under the scenario with interest rates increasing to 4% in six years, your new build, you'd have to top up over a 15-year period, a total of 9.5K. And that's more than offset and paid back by the other cash flow in the years where the property's making money. The existing property, you'd have to top up by a total of 66 grand over 15 years, which is about $85 a week. So it starts to make those returns much, much smaller. And it'd be a tough sell to tell an investor that, over a 15-year period, they're topping up a property by $85. And in some years, the cash flow loss would actually be more around $155. Now, Andrew, talk to us about what would happen if people were investing with a cash deposit. So we ran those same numbers again based on existing property and putting in a cash deposit. Now we've worked on a cash deposit of 40%, so a loan of 60%. So in the case of $600,000, we are working on $240,000 cash deposit. If you did this then your cash flow would be positive. But you're still paying a reasonable amount of tax. So in the first year, you're paying $650. Again, that's lowest because of the depreciation. Next year, paying $3,200. Next year's $4,000. Goes up and up and up. So when you look at the return on investment, that works out to be 219% over that 15-year period, which averages out to be about 5.39% per annum, which isn't nothing. But it also isn't great. So at that stage, you might be saying, okay, well, perhaps I am investing in a managed fund that might be getting me a 7% return or something like this. And I think the key message here is that if you're going to invest in an existing property in the new regime, you really need to add some value. You need to bring up the rent and you need to bring up the value straight away. You can't just buy and hold an existing property anymore and expect the same kind of returns. Now, we're not saying that the laws might not change. I actually think that given the pressure that's going to come from this, there might be some changes to the proposal, and or when we no longer have a Labour government, these rules might get undone. And then you might see a major adjustment, and there might be some catch-up growth. But if we just assume all things are equal and we work on today's new law, then if you're buying an existing property, it might not be worth it anymore. But if you buy an existing property and you're talented enough to add some value to it, you bring up the value by 50, 100 grand, and you bring up the rent by another 100, $150 a week, then you can still have a winning formula. Yeah, a couple of things that we haven't factored in here. So we haven't put into these calculations a 30% increase in rents. Now, I am going to adjust the spreadsheet again. Honestly, it makes me so happy in many ways being able to make changes to this. You know, where you could put a one-off adjustment to rents and then increase it by, say, 4% per year. I definitely agree with you that adding value and significant value to a property is going to become much more attractive and actually I was having a conversation with Ilsa, friend of the show and we've recorded three episodes with her which are going to be released very very shortly where she was saying well does existing make sense and I say look I think there are some opportunities now for you Ilsa as a very active investor and for other active investors out there because you're not going to have every Tom, Dick and Harry investor out there competing with you in order to purchase 
gold mine properties. And of course, remember, there are a lot of first home buyers that aren't interested in rundown properties or properties where you can add significant value. First home buyers and homeowners tend to want a finished product. So there are going to be a lot of existing properties out there that are going to be ripe for the picking. And there's going to be a lot of opportunities if you can add enough value to increase the rent and increase the price of that property so that you are able to refinance out your total deposit so that you're still continuing to invest after the LVRs have come in and these other changes. There are going to be opportunities for existing investors out there. And I also think you've got to remember as well, this is just a model. We've worked on some assumptions and looked at what it might look like over a 15 year period. Who knows what's going to happen? There are going to be a lot of nervous investors out there who won't go and buy another property or they're going to offload some properties. So if you can pick up that deal, all of a sudden you can beat these average returns. So it's just about knowing when and how to strike. Fantastic. Let's wrap it up there. But please don't forget to rate, review and subscribe to the podcast. It really does help us get the message out to more people. And hey, if you want to review your portfolio in the light of these changes, then we have just launched a new service to help existing investors say, hey, here's which of the changes are going to affect you most. And here are some strategies that you can actually implement yourself in order to improve your portfolio and continue to be a successful property investor. Now, the first 15 people who sign up for this new service are going to be to get to work with Andrew directly and I know we've had a significant number of people interested in this already because they want to know how this is going to impact their portfolio. The fee for this is 999 and if you're interested in that we're going to drop a link in the show notes so tap or swipe over the cover up there'll be a link in there or just go to opuspartners.co.nz slash review. for listening to the Property Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ed McKnight. I'm going to be back again tomorrow with even more daily strategies, tactics and insights to help you get the most out of the New Zealand property market. Until next time.